only the best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. Beyond the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. The clock is ticking. The anticipation is rising for the 106th running of the Indianapolis 500 mile race on a day when we made a milk toast at the American Dairy Association of Indiana to the rookie class of 2022. Seven of them, as a matter of fact. Sam Rumsa, I'm going to see if I can name all seven off the top of my head. Are you ready? Yes. We had the fastest rookie qualifier, Romain Grosjean. Jimmy Johnson of, of course, Ganassi Racing, who was not able to be at the luncheon today due to previous commitments. Uh, Kayla Mylott, David Malukas, Christian Lungard, Devlin DeFrancesco, and what's the old saying? If you've got a name, what am I at? Six? Um, of course, this is no disrespect to any of them. I said Kayla Mylott, right? Christian Lungard, Mike Thompson, feel free to join in if you can think who I'm missing. Devlin DeFrancesco, uh, David Malukas, who am I missing, Sam? Oh, Kyle Kirkwood. Sorry, Kyle Kirkwood of AJ Foyt Racing. Um, and speaking of that, that might be a bit of a topic of conversation tonight. But good evening to you. My name is Jake Quarry. Sam Rumsa is here as well from the headquarters of Emmys Communications on Monument Circle in Indianapolis, as we talk about the stories behind the bricks, beyond the bricks, if you will, of the Indianapolis 500-mile race, and Mike Thompson, who joins me and is essentially the audio archivist of much of the audio that you will hear tonight. Mike, the reality is this. For those who are listening to this program that enjoy the nostalgia of yesteryear, going to be plenty of opportunity for folks to come out and pick up on any of the memorabilia that they want from their favorite driver, favorite year, favorite races. It's all going to be upcoming at the memorabilia show. Yeah, that's one of my favorite events. Uh, I really love, the, obviously, the memorabilia show, and I'm very excited about um, the, the new location. I mean, we've got uh, the chance to have almost three times the size of the old location, so it's uh, it's very exciting out in uh, Plainfield at the uh, Embassy Suites uh, Center out there. So very exciting Friday and Saturday. Okay, so Friday and Saturday at the Embassy seat, uh, Suites in Plainfield, the memorabilia show Give me an overview, Mike, real quick of the number of, of people that will be there, vendors, if you will, and how people can get involved. So it's uh, there's going to be, believe it or not, uh, the old show had about 70 tables and the new show is going to have 170 tables. So it's it's uh, it's grown in size dramatically. So uh, that's really exciting about it. There's also going to be driver. Uh, there's going to be driver signing autographs. Steve Kinzer will be there Friday. Ari Leyendijk will be there Friday. Uh, Poncho Carter, Mel Kenyon, and Johnny Parsons Jr. will be there on Saturday. Uh, the doors are three to eight on Friday at the Embassy Suites Event Center in Plainfield, and then uh, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. on Saturday. Uh, so and there's also there's going to be all kinds of things. They're, they're doing a silent auction. There's going to be door prizes, and several of the teams are involved uh, with the door prizes and silent auction. And so there's there's going to be a lot to see as far as uh, this memorabilia show. In it, in addition to the all the different vendors who have tables, including myself, I might add. Uh, the memorabilia show, or as we like to call it, Mike Thompson's evaporating 401k, right? 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> I I tend to spend more than I sell at the memorabilia <laughs> show, but uh, is, it'll be it'll be fun. But that's so. what makes it fun, right? You have one of the most amazing collections that one uh, could see, quite frankly, and certainly that includes the audio, much of which we will hear tonight. Mike, uh, earlier today on my morning show here on 93.5-1075 The Fan, shameless plug with Kevin Bowen, Kevin and Query, we did our interview with Elio Castroneves, who is part of the Drive for Five from Penn Station East Coast Subs in his attempt to win the fifth Indianapolis 500-mile race on his resume. And, of course, it was a year ago that he became the most recent four-time winner but, Mike, tonight we are going to take a look back at some new audio because there are certainly plenty of it out there. But when you're talking about beyond the bricks of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, the stories begin all the way back in 1911, but few of them are more, I guess, robust in terms of the oomph that they carry and the depths that they go than that of A.J. Foyt. Yeah, I thought it'd be fun. Um, you and I talked about this last night. And I said, you know, we're, we've talked a lot about Elio. We, we we profiled Big Al earlier in the month. And I thought, you know what? We've got such really cool audio from uh, when I sat down with A.J. Foyt that we didn't get to last year. And I thought, you know, hey, let's let's go in and explore some more of that audio. And A.J. is, you know, it, he was so candid in the interview. I got to so lucky to get to sit down with him. And, uh, you know, I think I think folks are really going to enjoy hearing from A.J. tonight. A.J. Foyt first strapped into an automobile, probably at a younger age than what it is credited. But the legend has it that the legend began at just the age of five when he got into a toy racer that his father had built for him with a lawnmower engine. And A.J. got in and drove around. His father, of course, had worked in the automobile industry. I shouldn't say, of course, you may not know that. His father was an auto mechanic. When Anthony Joseph Foyt Jr. was born on January 16th of 19. 19- 35. So it would be natural through osmosis that the racing bug would and the idea of working on cars and engines and steering wheels would get into the mind, the blood of A.J. Foyt. But it was beyond just watching his father. It also was finally getting behind a steering wheel, feeling that power and maybe not even necessarily on tracks, but rather simply in the yard. Here's A.J. Foyt on young A.J.'s career. I hate to admit it. Yes, it did. And I didn't steal it. I just took it off the trailer, and then I had my friends all push and get started, and then kind of backfired because it was carburetor back then and caught fire, and we got it out, but it burnt the paint all off the hood and all that. And uh, It's one I'm able to talk to you because my daddy was kind of narrow-minded about things like that because one time I outrun the cops when I was a young boy, and reported my car stolen and I lied to him. I got punished for one year at the house. Had to be at the shop every day by 3.30. He took me home. My grandmother and mother begged him on Christmas Eve, let him go out. And it was like a month before it was over with. He said, I said one year. And that was it. One year. Now, Mike, my apologies. I did a terrible job setting that up. Uh, He was talking about obviously getting in one of his father's early cars, correct? Yeah, there was a story that uh, I asked him about, and I said, you know, tell me about the time. I said, I heard a rumor. I said, tell me about the time you you uh, 
got a car out of your dad's garage when you weren't supposed to and you tore up the yard. I said, there's no truth to that, right? And then he said, no, I, well, that's true. <laughs> and so he got a big grin on his face when he was telling that story about him, you know, kind of causing a little bit of a ruckus back in Texas when he was a kid. He was 18 years old when he began racing midgets in 1953. And A.J. Foyt, Went around and raced basically anywhere that he could race, including the night before the 500 in Anderson in 1956. And it was, of course, Mike, one of the things that we will get into, it was during the course of running around, especially in the Midwest and racing cars, that when he developed a relationship with Tony Holman, it was beyond just simply a young aspiring driver and a guy who was, for all intent and purposes at that point, still a fairly young track owner and promoter. There was a father-son type relationship seemingly between Tony Holman and A.J. Foyt. Oh, no question about it. I mean, he, he saw Mr. Holman as, as family, and, and I think Mr. Holman saw A.J. as family. I mean, they were very, very close. There's no doubt about that. He ran his first Indianapolis 500 in 1958. It's funny to listen to the audio after he spun out of the race on lap 148 when – that's young Anthony Joseph Foyt of Houston, Texas. We'll see you back here again. Well, yeah, I assume you probably will. And, of course, whoever would have guessed at that time that he would go on to a record stretch of consecutive starts in the Indianapolis 500-mile race. But it was 1961 when A.J. Foyt, as a matter of fact, he eventually, in the 50th year of the Indianapolis 500-mile race, and, Mike, I always forget this, which show it was. I believe it was To Tell the Truth or... Whose line is it anyway? I always forget which show it was that he appeared with Ray Haroon. Do you recall? Yeah, to tell the truth. Okay. So he appeared on the show to tell the truth after winning the 50-year mark of the Indianapolis 500. That race took place on May 30th, 1961. It was the 45th, of course, running of the race, but it was the 50th year of it. And it was around that time, quite truthfully, that Ray Haroon started becoming recognized as, in fact, Ray Haroon as opposed to the Marmon Wasp being the winner of that very first race. But A.J. Foyt went on that television show, and suddenly, with his dashingly good looks and his kind of aw-shucks nature, a star was born. But the star might have been born on that day, on May 30th of 1961, when A.J. Foyt became an Indy 500 champion. Here right comes the checkered flag. Bill Vanderwater is getting set to wave it, and he is going to wave it now. He does for A.J. Foyt, winner of the Golden Anniversary 500-mile race. One of the most thrilling, surprising, exciting finishes ever. And now the checkered flag for Eddie Sachs right behind A.J. Foyt. And Eddie Sachs had started on pole. A.J. Foyt had started seventh. But this was Mike, I'm not going to say the beginning, but certainly in the early years of A.J. Foyt, to tell his story oftentimes includes to tell the name of Eddie Sachs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they they were kind of linked because of that famous race in 1961. It looked for, you know, looked for a while that A.J. was going to going to walk away and win. And then with Sachs coming in second and then A.J. had to make a, a late stop. And then it looked like Sachs could could be the victor. And then Sachs had to make a late stop for a tire. So it was very exciting at the end because uh, it, it changed a couple different times there at the end. But they were they were quite linked from that 1961 victory for Foyt. Eddie Sachs led from laps 184 to 197. Then, as Mike had mentioned, it was the late stop that gave the lead to Supertex. A.J. Foyt on lap 198, he went on to win the race. Later, he talked about... That connection, that battle in 1961 
with the likable and gregarious guy they called the clown prince, Eddie Sachs. Well, that's quite true. You know, uh, when they give me the board, you never all the radios like you have today, late stop. And I'm thinking, what do they mean, late stop? And then they put late stop fuel. You can see the board. And I'm saying to myself, man, this is hell no. I have it. I felt like I had it one, then I lost it. And then when I come in, and then Eddie all that time had a load of fuel and was trying to run with me with a light load of fuel, so he actually wore the right front out. And when he did come in, I think three or four laps or whatever it was, two laps, I don't recall, but his tire done wore through two layers of card. I mean, he couldn't have probably went through one more turn. He pushed it to the limit. And uh, there's one deal that you raced hard all day, you felt like you had it won, you lost it, and then it comes back and you win. So that normally don't happen here. A.J. Foyt would return in 1962, of course, as we'd mentioned. A.J. Foyt would return virtually every year. In 1962, he started in fifth before finishing in the 23rd position, of course, flying in car number one because of the fact that he was the season champion. Then in 1963, it was another podium finish, so to speak, to use that terminology in the Sheraton special. A.J. Foyt finishing third in 1963. Then came the fateful day of 1964. Mike, we have talked about this before. I know that it is a subject that, unfortunately, is rather ubiquitous when it comes to the conscience of the Indianapolis 500 and its history. But Eddie Sachs was an extremely popular driver. Dave McDonald was, of course, a rookie driver in the Thompson Sears All-State Special. And the two of them were involved in a horrific crash, as we know, at the beginning of the 1964 race. And without going into the graphic detail of the fact that it was a, an awful day that was a double fatality, I think one of the things it goes without saying whenever two men lose their life like that, you had one of the most popular drivers in the paddock and by and for fans in the form of Eddie Sachs. You had a driver in Dave McDonald that was just kind of on the rise. But in addition to that, Mike, I think for so many people – it created a dichotomy, if you will, of emotion because here you had a popular winner in A.J. Foyt, but yet it came on a day when people, even some 199 laps later, still, of course, carried with them a somber nature that many of them never let go of because of that horrible tragedy at the outset of the race. Yeah, I agree with that. And and what I always think about of that day is there's a there's a famous color photograph. You remember the fact that they would fly the newspaper with the fame the newspaper headlines and to get to the, get to the victory lane ceremony so somebody could hold up the winner could hold up a you know a picture of you know a newspaper that would would trumpet, you know, what happened in the race or something. And there's a famous color photograph of AJ with with Mrs. Foyt standing there and and it says, you know, Foyt wins 500, and then underneath it, it says Sachs McDonald die. And there's and AJ has this just, I mean, the look on AJ's face is just, it's it's defeat, honestly. Even though he's the winner, I mean, he's he's, he's, he's the colors just drained out of his face, you know, looking at the headline, honestly. And so that's honestly what I think of when I I think of that day, just the fact that, you know, yes, he's the winner, but. It was such a tragic day and so sad that, uh, you know, the, he's, yes, there was a winner that day, but the, really there were there really weren't any winners that day. And here is A.J. Foyt, who became a two-time winner, but his thoughts on that entire situation of which we speak. 
Well, that's true, and, and a tragic accident like that takes a lot out of you after which because sure you're happy with the win but I knew all them boys that lost their lives and you know like Eddie Sachs that day where we had such great races and uh, fortunate enough I was able to drive his sprint car the Cheeseman car that he won so many sprint car races in and you just hate to see anything like that happen and I'm just kind of glad the cars are so much safer today than they were then and these boys don't realize it of course I guess I don't realize I guess I don't realize in the early days with them guys, but looking at the Carnegie Museum, I take my hat off to them very highly and respect them very highly. When we come back, the star of A.J. Foyt rises as he becomes the biggest name at Indy and probably the biggest name in racing. But with that, a tender side of A.J. Foyt. That's right. I said it that we will examine as well. More on the legend of Anthony Joseph Foyt Jr. on this Beyond the Bricks. Get ready. It's starting. The race is on. The Burger Chef 500. Get your scorecard, collect stickers, and take off. Finish the race and win the grand prize. One of six Camaro Z28 style like the 1982 Indy 500 base car. Or win instant prizes like racing jackets, digital sport watches, high-power binoculars, and food. Over 400,000 prizes. The Burger Chef 500. The race anybody can win. So enter today and make it fast. By the way, if you missed out on your opportunity for a Hardy's digital sport watch, no worries. You might be able to pick one up at the memorabilia show. Coming up this weekend, right, Mike? Are there going to be some Hardy's swag at the memorabilia show? I'm hoping there'll be some some of the, the old Hardy's Burger Chef stuff. Yeah, that'd be or good. Burger Chef. Yeah, I should have said Burger Chef. And this is going to be the memorabilia show. Give me the information again, please. Uh, the memorabilia show is at the Embassy Suites uh, Embassy Suites Event Center in Plainfield, and it's three to eight on Friday, and on Saturday it is nine to four. And the dumb question that I have for you, Mike Thompson, is: Do people need to buy tickets for this, or is it simply a show up and pay, or is it a free no? You event? can show right up at the door, and, and they'll okay. take care of you right at the door. Okay, and. Um, but you do need a ticket to get in, right? Yeah, it, yeah. That's a, there's a there's an entry right at the door that they'll take care of you for for your tickets and stuff like that. But yeah, it's it, it's taken care of right at the entrance to the show. Got that? Okay. Now let's talk about uh, more about AJ Foyt. That's the subject matter tonight for Beyond the Bricks. When we left you, AJ was a two-time Indianapolis 500 winner, winning the race in 1961 and 1964. But not everything came easy for AJ Foyt. As a matter of fact, he had his fair share of accidents. It is well documented everything that he has overcome over the course of his career, from car accidents to bulldozer flips to killer bees, a little of everything. And that includes a pretty scary incident for him, Mike, in 1965. Yeah, in 65, people don't really remember this as much as I think they should have, but in a NASCAR race at uh, Riverside, uh, we actually almost lost AJ in that accident. He he flipped his car down like a hill, 25 feet down this hill, and he he broke his back. He broke his ankle, and by the time the the doctors got down the hill, um, 25 feet down the hill, they got to his car, and he actually wasn't breathing, and he he was starting to turn a little bit blue and things like that. And so they assumed he was dead. And so the track doctor actually said at the scene that he was dead, and they said don't. Parnelli Jones actually was walking down the hill and they told him, they said, don't bother going down there. He's dead. And Parnelli didn't, didn't listen. He actually kept going down the hill 
And when he got down there, he noticed that there were that AJ actually was moving a little bit. And what happened was he got a bunch of mud stuck in his mouth. And Parnelli actually reached in and started scooping the mud out of AJ's mouth so he could start breathing again. And they ended up taking him to the hospital and, and AJ made it. And so I actually asked Parnelli one time about, I said, hey, you know, you, you saved AJ's life, right, at, at Riverside in 1965? Yeah, well, he was kind of turning blue and uh, in a real odd color, you know, when it didn't look good, as a matter of fact. But uh, they were pushing me back. I mean, I was uh, make sure that he had the best attention that he could get for, as far as I remember. But uh, when I got up there right to him and everything, I could see that he, he needed a lot of help. And uh, obviously they put him in the ambulance and took him right away to the hospital. A year later, Parnelli Jones, of course, a hero for that moment, one of the great drivers. You know, it's interesting, Mike, we've talked about Parnelli many times, but I was talking to our mutual friend Paul Kelly yesterday in the Speedway, and we were talking about great drivers that maybe – already are not given their proper due for the greatness of their era hard to say that about parnelli jones because he is often mentioned when people talk about great drivers and we've certainly have featured him on beyond the bricks but i don't think no matter how long we had to do it that we could overstate just how good parnelli was in terms of his level of competitiveness and maybe even being above many of his competitors in the era in which he drove oh yeah i mean parnelli was one of the absolute greats. I mean, we talked about this, you know, the other day and I mean, he could have won, you know, almost every race he was ever in in the Indianapolis 500. I mean, he, he certainly could have won, um, uh, 62. He certainly, I mean, he won 63. I mean, he was second in 65. I mean, he could have obviously should have probably won 67. So, I mean, Parnelli Jones, absolutely one of the greats. There were probably times where AJ Foyt wondered after the 1966 race, when he was looking back on it, why exactly he even, went through the motions because that's a crazy one, Mike, in the fact that the 1966 race, I think people forget. We talk so much when it comes to early race accidents that eliminated large portions of the field. 1982 is the one that many people will immediately mention as coming to mind. But, man, you want to talk about a big one that involved some huge names. Kel Yarborough, Dan Gurney, Larry Dixon, and A.J. Foyt among those that were part of a huge crash to begin that race in 1966. Yeah, and that was also one that Gary Congdon was in that accident, and that was his only appearance in the 500. And so he he only drove those few feet, you know, down the front stretch, and then he was never in the race again. So um, he was involved in that wreck as well. Um, That was the race that Foyt was, you know, he was in that accident, as you mentioned. He climbed the fence. He was the only injury from that accident because he cut his thumb on the fence trying to scale the fence and jump over to the other side. 1967, A.J. Foyt came back. The Sheraton Thompson, the Coyote Ford of A.J. Foyt, picked up $171,000 that day. Back on May 31st of 1967, A.J. Foyt became a three-time winner. Uh, Here he is, number 14, and I believe the A and the J would stand for all joy right at the moment. He is driven. Watch out, there's a crash. There's a yellow light. Pick it up, Jim. It's in the home stretch, Sid. It's down near you. Somebody in the pit can see. It appears to be Chuck Hulse in number eight. He slides and slams and screams into the pit, but they're helping him out of the car. He appears to be okay from here. We can see him about 100 yards away. Chuck Hulse being taken out of the race car on the very final lap. And the red flag is out, and they stop the race. 
The race is being stopped with the accident on the main stretch. Another car was bumped further up and several more on the turn. We'll have to get a further recap of that activity on the very final lap of the race. Pat Van holds the yellow and the red, and the winner of the race is obviously A.J. Foyt. We haven't had that flashed yet. A.J. Foyt has received the checkered flag. It was not necessarily, Mike, the most enthusiastic or energetic of calls because it was really mayhem, as you could easily hear there, when A.J. Foyt became a three-time winner. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was a big mess that A.J., you know, he jokes around. Uh, if you saw that show uh, last week about the four-time winners, the club, he was talking about uh, having to just put it in gear and whoever he hit, he was going to take across the finish line with him, you know. But um, – yeah, I mean that was that was mayhem, and and obviously the reason the red flag immediately has to be displayed is back then, and the rules were they would let the the race continue for five minutes after the winner had taken the checkered flag to allow for people to get in the champion hundred mile an hour club and things of that nature, and and that, the red flag obviously immediately puts an end to all that. So when AJ Foyt won his third race in nineteen sixty seven, he became the third three time winner or excuse me, the fourth three-time winner, but the first in 19 years. Maury Rose had become a three-time winner in 1948, Wilbur Shaw and Louis Meyer before him. So now you have A.J. Foyt in the quest for number four. And oftentimes when people talk about it, there will be other races that will be mentioned in A.J. Foyt's quest for four. And then ultimately, as we mentioned with Elio Castroneves now going for the drive for five, A.J. Foyt certainly had plenty of opportunities for that as well. But when you think about 1977, the year in which A.J. Foyt became a four-time winner, A.J. Foyt will actually tell you there were other races that he thought were more likely to give him that crown, and at that time, an unprecedented crown. For example, the race of 1969 was won by Mario Andretti. But, Mike, that's a race that A.J. Foyt, like so many racers, can look at different races and feel like it got away from them We talk so much about the fact that that is the lone win of Mario Andretti in 1969 is synonymous with Mario, but that's also one that perhaps might keep A.J. Foyt up at night. Yeah, I mean, A.J. Foyt started on the pole that day and and had a great car, and and that's certainly one that A.J. feels like uh, that's one that got away from him, certainly. He led twice that day for 66 laps. Here's A.J. Foyt on the 1969 Indianapolis 500. 69 was another fast year I had. You know, we sat on the pole and it was very fast, and then we had a manifold crack. And I teased Mario. I mean, he's a great race driver, don't get me wrong. But I said, I'd give you that race that year, Mario. But, uh, no, like I said, he's a great race driver, and he run hard, so he deserved it. Now, leading up to 1977, Mike, You know, in your listening to audio clips, in your studying, in your vast level of historical knowledge, Mike Thompson, of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, in your conversations with Donald Davidson, the historian emeritus of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, let's go back now to that 10-year period, that decade, leading up to 1977 when A.J. Foyt is running as a three-time winner. And as I've mentioned, the first three-time winner in nearly two decades and the only active one going at that time looking to become the man that stood all by himself as a four-time winner. In terms of the coverage leading up to it, in terms of the anticipation leading up to it, Mike, do you believe it was more than, less than, same, the amount of pressure 
that Elio Castroneves felt and that Elio Castroneves continues to feel now in pursuit of number five? Ooh, that's a pretty good question. I think um, I think it's different for Elio because it's been I don't know. I think with with all the different aspects we have now today with the social medias and things like that. I mean, I think there's a lot of pressure on Elio to be the the person to get five. Um, with AJ, uh, I think. I mean, Donald always would joke with me because AJ won in 61, he won in 64, he won in 67. Donald always would joke with me that they all thought AJ was just going to win in 1970, keep the streak alive of winning every three years and and be done with it, and then he'd retire. Um, he, that was kind of a joke that they all kind of had, and it took a lot longer for AJ to win the fourth. But I think a lot of people thought AJ was going to win the fourth. It's just what year. And, and most people kind of jokingly thought it'd be 1970 just because of that numerical, you know, winning every three years at that point. Um, so I think, I think that by the time that AJ hadn't won it, then it's like, well, wait a minute, you know, when is it really going to finally happen? And especially since he had so many great opportunities, I mean, 74, he had a great chance, uh, 75, he had a great chance. So then all of a sudden the pressure is really starting to become to build by, by the time you get around to 77 and things like that. I mean, 74, 75, 76, he, he really could have won any of these three years uh, potentially. I mean, Johnny Rutherford was great in 74, and then there was obviously rain in 75 and 76 that plays a big part. Here is A.J. Foyt on going for number four. You know, in 75, we should have won 76, but we've run out of fuel twice. 77, we run out of fuel, and we got 32 seconds down, and we knew we were faster than Big Naughty. And my chief mechanic, Jack Storms, which is still works for me in Houston, he says, uh, I said, they'll let us get within 10 seconds, and then they'll turn the boost up, and I'll turn my boost up. That time you could run whatever boost, but I didn't want to take a chance of breaking the motor before I got close to him. It went 10, 8, 9. You know, I was catching him on two seconds. Jack said, if you turn the boost up, I said, no. I said, they got to be in trouble. And then he blew up because I knew Big Naughty, knowing the way I raced, he wasn't going to let me get within 10 seconds of him because I kind of knew how he operated. Before, when I'd be wet and lead, he said, back off, back off. And then, all right, start picking it up. And uh, that's where we worked good together. And that's the reason I said to Jack, which catched him pretty quick. I said, and they let me give him about 10 seconds, then he'll send Gordy. Well, I guess he was in trouble before that. I did not know that. And Jack then thought I turned the boost up. I said, no, I'm still running the same boot. I said, they got to be in trouble. You know what yeah, I mean? So, absolutely. And then they come apart, the motor did. It was the legendary football coach of the Houston Oilers, Bum Phillips, once talking about the NFL team of A.J. Foyt's hometown in Houston. When he was asked about trying to win the AFC against his rival Pittsburgh Steelers, and Bum Phillips, to paraphrase, said, first we knocked on the door, then we banged on the door, and this year we're basically going to kick the darn thing down. I'm paraphrasing. A.J. Foyt knocked on the door. He banged on the door. In 1977, on the May the 29th, in the 61st running of the Indianapolis 500-mile race, when it came to uncharted territory, A.J. Foyt finally kicked down the door. A.J. Foyt down the main straightaway. The checkered flag is out. A.J.'s hand in the air. He is the winner. A.J. Foyt at Indianapolis has won his fourth 500-mile race. Paul Page on the call in his first effort as the chief announcer of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway radio network. 
Mike, that was such a special race for the reasons that we have discussed before. And quite frankly, at that time, no one particularly knew what made it so special. Obviously, as we talked about last night, Janet Guthrie was a rookie in that race. So you had your first female in the Indianapolis 500 field, a female that, as we heard last night, got assistance from A.J. Foyt, certainly just in terms of kind of showing to the masses that he was okay with her being there. But it was also special, Mike, because it was unbeknownst to anybody at the time that it ran on that May 29th day, the final race in which the true daddy of them all, if you will, to quote the Rose Bowl, but Tony Holman, the man that rescued the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and elevated it into the greatest racing and sports facility in the world and was so close to A.J. Foyt, Mike, it was fitting, I guess, that the last race that Tony Holman would see would be that in which he saw A.J. Foyt win his fourth race. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're not obviously having this conversation tonight if it's not for Tony Holman. I mean, he saved the he saved the speedway and uh it was so important what he did and and it's just it was serendipitous the fact that AJ Foyt saw Mr. Holman and said, "Hey, please join me." I mean, Tony Holman wrote you know rode in the pace car afterwards with drivers before, but he wanted AJ wanted Tony Holman to ride on the back of the car so he could also be acknowledged by the fans. And it was just such a special moment. And it was it was so important to AJ, and I think it meant so much to Mr. Holman, too. Tony Holman passed away in October of 1977. But it was, in fact, for the 76-year-old, the moment in which he rode around the speedway with A.J. Foyt after that win that was such an iconic moment. Fans spilling out to shake A.J.'s hand to recognize him on the back of the pace car. And it was such a special moment. Here is A.J. Foyt talking about having Tony Holman enjoy that moment with him. I would have to say that would rank with all the special moments. I guess being fortunate enough to, to make the race here, the race, not win, was one of the big moments of my life. And then be fortunate enough to win it the first time. And then be fortunate enough to be the four-time winner first. And Mr. Holman right around, yeah, they both rank about the same. When we come back, he's gruff, he's unfiltered, and at times brutally honest. But there's another side to A.J. Foyt, too. We'll take a look at that when we return to Beyond the Bricks. The Indianapolis 500 is being brought to you by Honda Motorcycle. Honda, follow the leader. By United Airlines, fly the friendly sky. By K-Care, where quality parts and service are Kmart Pride. And by Activision Video Game. Activision puts you in the game. 1982 Indianapolis 500. One of them that A.J. Foyt probably would like to forget. But he is the subject tonight. Anthony Joseph Foyt Jr., the four-time winner of the Indianapolis 500-mile race. The reality is when you are a driver that elevated to the level of fame and fortune of A.J. Foyt at a time when open-wheel racing in the United States was the top form of motorsport interest really around the world when it came to the Indianapolis 500. And A.J. Foyt was the man who was more successful at that race in terms of victory lane than anybody in the history of the event. 
then naturally it only stands to reason that other racing series would come calling, perhaps make overtures and gauge your interest. Certainly that was the case with Formula One, which of course, Mike, a lot of people may forget that A.J. Foyt certainly had Formula One points because the Indianapolis 500 was scored as a Formula One event in that time period, which shows you the level of significance that it had on the global scale. Uh, yeah, the the Indianapolis 500 counted as a Formula One race from 1950 to 1960. So, um, there so he was, did there was, run. He ran, what, three of them, right, as a Formula One race, right? He ran, yes, he ran three of them. That's correct. But the question is, would A.J. Foyt ever actually become a full-time Formula One driver? His thought process on that. I never was. I was offered a ride years back with Ferrari, and that's about time with Copenhagen. Uh, I never was that wanted to go over there because, first of all, I didn't like their food. I'm from Texas where you have steak and potatoes or a hamburger. They didn't believe in that over there. And then wearing a necktie where you go, that's not A.J. Foyt. Uh, I'm just A.J. Foyt, and if I have to wear one, but normally I might wear one once a year, and that's when life or death, you know. Uh, but uh, I, I just didn't care for the environment over there. I've been over there. I raced against them. I knew a lot of them. They're great friends, but I, I just never had that interest in Formula One racing. Let me ask you about 67. I interviewed Parnelli the other day. He's still kicking himself about 67. <laughs> well, that's quite true. I mean, we knew we couldn't beat the turbine car, and like both of us, uh, I knew I was going to try to keep pressure on him all day long. If you remember, I won it by a lap. But uh, that's the only way I felt like we could, you know, just push all day and not let them coast. And then they broke a little U-joint or something. I don't remember what. But that thing had so much power and torque, it was dominant. You know, he just had it going his way all day until. But, you know, this thing's never over with till you get the checkered flag, just like last year. You would think you'd crash on coming out of the fourth turn to check flag like 67 when everybody wrecked from me. I said, oh, no. And I slowed down, and I said, whoever I hit, I'm going to carry them past that start-finish line. I knew that. But uh, you just never know until it's over. That interview, obviously, from 2013 when A.J. Foyt with Mike there was referencing J.R. Hildebrand hitting the wall in 2012. But A.J. Foyt was no stranger, as we had talked about, to being a guy essentially with nine lives, whether it be on a bulldozer, whether it be killer bees, as we talked about, but certainly in a race car. Mikey had his fair share of serious accidents. We heard Parnelli Jones talking about one. But A.J. Foyt each time seemed to bounce back. Here's A.J. Foyt on what it took necessarily or the mental fortitude, all that went into coming back from serious crashes. Well, that's quite true. And, you know, on some of them series, when my first race was always back here. And after the Elkhart Lake to sit on the front row was a big moment for me. And the reason I think I did, because you know, because the press would always write up, A.J.'s washed up, he's through. I was to prove a point to them more than myself. And I guess the hardest time coming back was 67 after I was burnt in 66 uh, because every time you hit the wall, the cars would blow up on fire. That was probably the hardest thing for me to come back was 1967. All of it grew the legend. All of it increased the mystique and elevated the status, the cult of personality, the aura of A.J. Foyt. 
Here's IMS historian emeritus Donald Davidson. In 1978, USAC, uh, several drivers went to run races at Silverstone and Brands Hatch. And I think between the two, they were on consecutive weekends, and they had a sort of meet the public, meet the press type of a thing. On the South Bank, right next to the Royal Festival Hall, which is within a, a short stroll from where I used to work. But anyway, so they had this gathering, and uh, I think it was the British Autosport magazine. Maybe Nigel Roebuck wrote the article. But anyway, he said that among the people there, Shell, Shell Max House, uh, w- w- had a building that was very close by. And he said that uh, an executive from Shell walked over and he said, the reason that I came over here was because I wanted to meet A.J. Foyt or see A.J. Foyt because everything that I understood about him was he was larger than life. Well, now that I can tell you, he is. And uh, and, and just Foyt w- w- could be, a, I mean, he had the, the, the temper, not as bad as Parnelli maybe, but he has the, you know, the, the, the reputation for being, a, you know, having a short temper and bad loser and everything like that. But he could be extremely gracious and just sort of old world Southern manners for the women. I mean, he'd always call them, you know, Miss, and and uh, and uh, you know, he would blush easily, and he, and even before he mellowed, which he has in recent years. But there was still there's something about him where I think that even if you didn't know who he was, certainly back then. I mean, Foyt in the '60s and '70s, if you saw him somewhere, you'd think, "Who is that?" <laughs> And the interesting thing about A.J. Foyt during that time, as you heard Donald talking about, was the fact that, you know, he did have a Southern charm about him, even though he was this larger-than-life cult of personality. Here is Paul Page, who, as we mentioned, was on the microphone in 1977 when Foyt won his fourth race, talking about that side of A.J. Foyt that some may be surprised by. Race drivers in general are a bit of a dichotomy. On the track give no quarter. They're going to race you hard. They're going to do everything they can to win. Uh, During a race weekend, they're going to try and psych you out. They're going to do anything they can there. Uh, Get them away from the fold. And almost all of them are very sensitive people. So many of them are are almost totally shy when you get them out in a social setting. Um, AJ, I've probably watched 50 times where he had an emotional reaction, a tearing reaction to something said to him, a compliment or done for him, like the presentation of that card. And I don't think if we ever could find a way to know that we would have any idea how many race drivers and crew members that might have been down in their luck or injured that AJ helped. Uh, a very sensitive guy. Doesn't want that played at all. I'll get in trouble for having said it here, but that's who he is. He's a very loving man on the other side. Mike, there is no doubt about the fact that A.J. Foyt, as we're about to hear from Paul Page, but we're talking about somebody that maybe sometimes just because we see him, you know, he is obviously an iconic figure. Um, But, in fact, I think he still is larger than life, even though he is some nearly 30 years removed from being in a race car. Yeah, let me tell you something real quick about that interview I did. It was actually in, in 
2012 and I had just had my open heart surgery and I, I probably shouldn't even have been out there because I was, I was only a couple months away from having had, I mean, post-op. So I shouldn't even have been out there at the speedway. And one of the things I was super, super self-conscious about was my scar. And I was wearing shirts like as high up on my collar area. So people couldn't see that I had a scar and it actually happened that AJ saw my scar and he said, Hey, what's, what's with this? And I said, oh, I said, Mr. Foyt, and I, you know, I keep referring, I always refer to him as Mr. Foyt. I've never, you know, I, when I speak to him, it's, he's Mr. Foyt. And I said, oh, Mr. Foyt, I, I just had open heart surgery a couple months ago in February. And he said, well, why you got your shirt pulled up? So I said, well, I said, I don't want anybody to see my scar. I'm really self-conscious of it. And he said, oh, scars, that's nothing. There's nothing wrong with that. And, and he says, pull that shirt down. And he pulled it, my shirt, my shirt a little bit. And I was I was kind of laughing and he goes, oh, here, look, I've got a scar here and a scar here. And he showed me like three of his scars really quick. And he goes, there's nothing wrong with scars. And I honestly, to this day, don't feel self-conscious about my scar anymore because AJ Ford showed me his scars. And he said to me, scars are fine. And I've never worried about my scar ever since then. And that's the kind of guy AJ Ford is. He made me immediately feel at home. And, and just like, like I was just one of his best friends and we had, you know, we had just started talking that day and, you know, and so that's just the kind of person he is. He's very sensitive that, that people may not realize that, but he helped me a lot that day. I can tell you that right now. Well, if AJ Foyt is cool with something, then it's probably pretty cool because AJ Foyt is an icon. Once again, Paul Page. Social media be on him pretty good. Yeah. Well, he's even more than than those things that you've just mentioned and his record number of victories and everything. He also straddles two distinctly different eras from the old front engine roadster to the development of the rear engine car. And now as an owner, the further development of that car Um and to know that he was the first four-time winner just somehow seems totally appropriate. And he is such a hoot even to this day. He always has been. Uh, sit down and talk with him. And, uh, you know, those are those are casual and mostly off-the-record conversations anyway. But uh, he'll talk about those days and, you know, this is what happened. And, boy, did I screw this up. And if you, if you look at the record, there's probably four other races that he probably should have won. And the ones he one he probably shouldn't have won so aj's aj when you i i hesitate to call somebody in sports an icon but there's no hesitation when you say aj foyt he absolutely is and he continues to be that to this day in 1993 aj foyt was a 35-time starter of the indianapolis 500 mile race 35 times he drove into the pit stalls in 1993 during qualifying, climbed out of his car with tears in his eyes, and then announced to the world that he'd made a decision. A.J. Foyt made the decision to retire. Was it, did that almost have to be the way it happened? Because you didn't think about it. It was just like you had the problem with Robbie Gordon in the morning, and it was just kind of like, okay, well, that's it. That was about the third time he wrecked a car. Then I turned around, and I was faster than anybody that day. Every, my whole crew was disappointed because they felt like we'd win the pole pretty easy. Uh, I said, I'm through. And I'll tell you how that all happened. was in 1961, Mr. Holman sent Ray Hoorun and myself to New York on What's My Line. And I asked him, you know, I was young and he was very old. I said, when do you know it's time to quit? He said, it'll come to you all of a sudden. And after that deal with Robbie, and I said, who's yelling? They said, our other car. 
And I said, well, I can't do both, so it's time to step out. I started here, had a great time, so nobody could believe the day. I mean, it was hard on me. I hate to make that announcement, but, and I haven't stepped back in IndyCar since, you know. The funny thing about Mr. Hiroon, which is Ray Haroon, of course, as that old man in 19... I'm trying to think, Mike, how old would Ray Haroon have been in 1961? Oh, that's a good question. It was seven years and before by the he way, passed away. And by the way, we both got it wrong, myself and Mr. Foy, because it was actually I've Got a Secret. That was the show. Ah, there <laughs> that, we go. That, yeah. So, uh, Ray Haroon, uh, by the way, in that recording was uh, 81 years old. So, in fact, he was, in fact, an older man, but younger than how old is Foyt to this day Mike 84 85 oh, 80 uh, AJ Foyt was born in 35 so 86 or 87 so he is 87 years old so he is an older man now than Ray Haroon when Ray Haroon was a an old man but here's the thing bottom line AJ Foyt is one of those guys that helped make the Indianapolis 500 what it is just don't tell AJ Foyt that he'd disagree well, you know, I won a lot of major races, you know, Daytona, the 24-hour Le Mans, and won uh, Sebring 12 hours, and Daytona 500, and, you know, and won Pocono four times, won California, won them all over, been fortunate enough to be lucky enough, but, you know, a lot of people think they come here, and that's what made Indianapolis. I got news for them. When you talk to my fans and people know me, they know me from one race, so A.J. Foyt didn't make Indianapolis because Indianapolis was here way before A.J. Foyt. And like I said, it's been a lot of great race traffic to go through here. Indianapolis is what put A.J. Foyt's name on the map. A.J. Foyt, one of the synonymous names, though, with the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Mike, one more time, if people want to pick up any memorabilia from A.J. Foyt or whatever driver it might be from yesteryear, they're going to have an opportunity upcoming. Tell me one more time about the memorabilia show in the last 30 seconds. Uh, Indie Memorabilia Show Friday and Saturday at the Embassy Suites Event Center in Plainfield, Indiana. That'll be a lot of fun. It's uh, 3 to 8 on Friday and 9 to 4 on Saturday. You know what else will be a lot of fun? will be tomorrow night when we do another episode of Beyond the Bricks. Sound good to you? Sounds good to me. All right. For Mike Thompson, Sam Rumson, my name is Jay Quarry. This is Beyond the Bricks, taking a look back at the names, the yesteryears, the icons of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. We'll do it again tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Good night, everybody.